Hey listeners, Shrill Collective here. Just a heads up that The Rat King contains adult content, including descriptions and instances of stalking and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Resources for these issues can be found in the show notes and at the end of the episode. Please enjoy The Rat King. It's the end of August, the year 2020. COVID cases are temporarily declining, but the country is still in the thick of pandemic limbo. Still pre-vaccine, pre-at-home testing. Pre-2020 election. Remember that time? Daphne and her family are returning home after nearly a month away with her parents in Asheville, North Carolina. Through tests and more tests and quarantines, Daphne had managed to unpeel herself from the city. It was a diligent extraction. But once completed, she tumbled out as a perfect fragment like a dried portion of mud knocked from a boot tread. A human being in the exact image of her own containment, who would never fit back in as cleanly. It's a long drive back to New York City. Beaches, bridges, cherry pits, radio shows, trials, and conversations. When they finally launch onto the Brooklyn Bridge, Daphne remembers that everything feels nostalgic and pretentious at the same time. The late summer light, the way words just hang in the air. The last few years have done a lot to her, and to the country. But Daphne's ready to welcome the sight of her street, still filthy from six months of suspended sweepings. And it's still New York City, so it's hard to park. Good to be home? Sure, yeah, let's say that. So this is Daphne. She lives with her partner, Kay, and their two children on the ground floor of a two-unit brownstone in the Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood of Brooklyn. They enter through a gate under the stoop. Daphne says that the children immediately kick off their shoes, throwing themselves into the house like into a mosh pit, absorbed by their toys with a combination of mindlessness and fevered intention. But Daphne on the other hand, notices something, almost right away. It didn't feel like we were alone. And you don't mean that poetically? No. There was something else in there with us. I could feel it. Then, like a second later, Sash said he saw a mouse. I mean, he says things like that a lot. But Sai said he saw it too, and he showed me where it ran. Sasha and Simon are Daphne and Kay's two sons. And Daphne says Simon never makes stuff up. Yeah, he's very ethical. So at this point, Daphne knows with certainty an insurrection has occurred while they were away. And it isn't long before Kay calls her into the living room to purvey the black, seedy droppings along the back of the couch. So the evidence is in. Yeah. We kept finding more and more droppings along baseboards, in shoes, behind the coffee maker. The mice had been everywhere while they were away. And Daphne can feel them watching her now. Yeah, but I still kept telling myself it didn't mean anything. Mean anything like what? You know, I was telling myself that sometimes... Whatever, sometimes mice are just mice. It's a weird thing, Daphne says. Sometimes mice are just mice. And it kind of makes you wonder, if mice are only mice sometimes, what are they the rest of the time? Welcome, everybody. This is The Rat King. 
Part One of Mice and Men. Daphne says after the kids are asleep, she crawls around with a rag and a spray bottle, holding her dead cat's laser pointer in her teeth, switched to flashlight mode, while Kay sorts through the backlog of mail. Kay hates going through mail, so they were over there muttering to themselves. I guess a part of me was just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Then I heard Kay cluck their tongue, and I just froze. I knew exactly what was coming. I was already sort of frantically calculating whether I had the bandwidth for it. So, what is it? Letters. From him. Three new letters from her decades-long stalker. Inside, there will be drawings. Some of Daphne, or his version of her. There will be verse. There will be humor. He will remember things she doesn't remember, And much of the time, the reason for that will be those things never happened. Or at least meant nothing the same to her. He'll rhapsodize about a pair of gloves she got him at a dollar store. Because she knew he'd lost his. Sure, sounds like the type of thing I might have done. Sounds like a good reason to stalk someone forever and ever. Daphne takes the letters from Kay. And when she takes the letters, she takes it all back on. She falls right into her old survival routine. First, looking for postmarks. If it bears saying, a letter without postmarks presents a more immediate menace. They're all postmarked, all three. And they are still coming from across the country, another plus. Next, she checks the return addresses. The first two are from a county jail in Oregon, which has been the case before. They are addressed with near-invisible scrawl, using Daphne's full name, all four parts, in a sickening intimacy. The last one, though, is from a private residence, addressed in blue ink. Daphne later tells me that this is when she feels like puking. She flings the letters across the floor, and they slide partway under the fridge and stick there, in the dust and feces and cobwebs. And that's when she begins to really experience the other intruders. The mice. Foraging her bloodstream. Nibbling her nerve endings. There's more than one. Sounds below her range of hearing. Movements outside her ocular scope. Yet she senses all of it. One thing I've learned from being on this planet myself for 43 years is that everything good and bad, has its own echo. And deep in our sensory cognition, we are processing infinite echoes of despair, of gun cases snapping shut, of EKG machines and hate speech in basements and at rallies, of children laughing, of code reds and alley cats and people singing. It's all mixed in. And the acoustics are good in New York City, if you're listening carefully. Maybe it's because of all the tall buildings. So Daphne finds herself sitting on her blue papasan chair, with no memory of how she got there, 
temporarily disabled by that distant cacophony. He hadn't contacted me in more than six years. Not since, well, since before we moved to this apartment. I'm just thinking, and I said it to Kay, you know, why is this happening to us again? And Kay said, I thought you made a deal. Which really pissed me off. Obviously, I thought I did too. And the truth is, Daphne had made a deal, at least by her definition. It had taken her some time to work it out, as the remainder of this podcast will chronicle. But she realizes, and she tells me later, this really hits her in this exact moment, she realizes now, in the middle of a global health crisis, in the middle of an enormous and overdue racial reckoning, in the middle of existential environmental crisis, an unprecedented political animus, and the, the overwhelming tides of loss and anxiety. I mean, we can go on about the year 2020. She realizes that now, all deals are off. Plain as that. That thought just hit me, like this sickening electrical jolt. You know, like the type of thing that makes a horse just take off running. It totally unmoored me. All deals are off. And they have been for a while now. Dear baby, it's great that you're still in New York. Not one of those lame halftime crooks that left as soon as shit got hard. Mad people keep dying. My celly got sick, and I heard he had to be taken to a real hospital. I don't think he died, though. Everyone says I probably already had it from him, but I don't think so. I never felt like anything. But I watched the news, and they keep saying that can happen. This is one of the letters you throw under the fridge? Correct. Chronologically, this was the first of those three. He was still in jail. Should I keep going? Please. <clears throat> hope, I guess, hope I'll get to see you soon. It's crazy because the flights are hella cheap right now. I might get on one soon. I can come straight to you or whatever. Whatever you think. That's just the letter U. I'll have a couple probation I'll have a couple probationary dates when I'm out and obs I'm not supposed to leave the state but it doesn't matter because I wouldn't be coming back. Anyway, shit is so crazy they can't keep track of anyone. Have you heard of the jungle? We could go there if things go sideways. I know you'll miss your kids but we can have some. It's for their own good. Yeah, so in the jungle there are these shamans. They can help us. My shrink told me that. There are these shamans down there and people really revere them. So much cooler than the United States of assholes. Anyway, I should be out of here any day. Everything, get, everything keeps getting pushed because of the whole corona thing. Okay, baby, I love you. Obviously, we won't say his name, but he has a nickname, right? Yeah, well, at least he was trying to get one going. Which is Phoebus. Right. He had it written on the door to his room, but I don't think anyone ever really called him that. 
Just for context, we're on a Zoom call right now. It's October 3rd, 2020. Sorry. Sorry, it's my mom. Do you want to... No, I'll call back. You just jumped a mile. That's what you do. That's what it... That's what it makes you do. Daphne and I meet for the very first time virtually in April of 2020. We are both writers. She writes for stage and I write nonfiction and, obviously, this podcast. We are thrown together by a former colleague of mine, Aaliyah, who met Daphne a few years ago at a dinner party. You were both falling apart during the quarantine. Everyone needs accountability in their creative work, so why not? Aaliyah's idea is that we would have this weirdly intimate COVID Zoom writing group. Right, and create deadlines for each other and that kind of thing. It was kind of like that at first. Except you can only meet at night when your kids are asleep. So it quickly becomes... Us getting drunk and talking (laughs) smack about Jonathan Franzen. (laughs) Daphne and I get along strangely well. But these are strange times. Needless to say, we end up talking about a lot more. So back to Phoebus. He starts writing these letters to Daphne more than a decade ago. First in the early fall of 2008, just after she and Kay move into a new apartment in the Fort Greene neighborhood of Brooklyn. That's when a lot of Daphne's problems with infestations start, too. It seems like just one of those things at first. Like, unfortunate, but unrelated. When it rains, it pours, or what have you. And then Daphne starts thinking, maybe not. Phoebus's letters pick up pace and eventually become phone calls and texts. And just to be clear, Daphne dated this person for a very short time, just three months when she was a freshman in college. She has never given him her address, email or physical, or her mobile number. Nevertheless, the harassment becomes an incessant drumbeat in Daphne's life. It goes on for literal years. All the while, the infestations are getting worse, too. And the connections become impossible for Daphne to ignore. Anytime she has a mouse in her house, she gets a phone call from Phoebus not too long after. When she clears the problem, she doesn't hear from him for a while. And so on. And it's not just rodents. There are flies and cockroaches, too. When you really stack up all the evidence, Phoebus and the infestations do appear to be in lockstep. I'm glad Daphne finally opened up to me about it. This pandemic has given all of us some weird hobbies. And I'll confess, my weird hobby has been absorbing and dissecting every facet of this story. Admittedly, I've clocked about 70 hours of phone calls and Zoom interviews with Daphne in the last six months. And my dog thinks I'm crazy. But this is a wild story. Give it a listen. Okay, so I want to really chronicle this out. Sure. But we have to go back a ways. You've mentioned other forays from the animal kingdom dating back a while. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like... It's like you suddenly start identifying the markers and then you can start constellating. Like, oh yeah, when I was living in LA, we had that white mouse and then... Hold on, a white mouse? 
Over the course of a few months, we ended up catching three different white mice. We thought they were, like, escaped lab subjects. The kind people feed to their pet snakes? Exactly. And you can connect Phoebus to these mice? I can place him in that timeline. What year is this? 2003. I'm, I'm positive about the date because we caught one of them right before the beginning of the Second Iraq War. It ran through my protest sign, right through the red paint. It looked like a murder scene. Did you say you catch them, like, alive? alive? Yeah. Are you letting them go? Yeah, of course. It's not easy to catch a mouse alive. If you're going to bother with that, you're probably not going to turn around and kill it. I guess what I'm asking is, how do you know you aren't catching the same mouse over and over? Oh, we drove them to Beverly Hills and let them go there. That was like six miles from us, so I think it's safe to say they weren't running all the way back. <laughs> That's funny. In case you're wondering, I did fact check this. And while rodents can find their way home from pretty astounding distances, the consensus seems to be that two or more miles is a good buffer zone. We'd put them in this plastic tub after we caught them. You know, those deep storage tubs you can get at Home Depot or whatever. Yeah. We'd put some grass and leaves and keep it open on top, and we'd drop in some food and give it a little water in the lid of a jar. Thoughtful. And then when we had time, usually within a day or two, we'd drive over to Beverly Hills and let them go. We were 22. I love that that's your defense. Think about being 22. It's a pretty good defense. They probably didn't even go in any of the houses. Rats in L.A. don't permeate your existence the same way they do in New York. I thought they were mice. Oh, right. We did too at first. But the last one we ended up having for a week or two for whatever reason we just couldn't get over there for a few days. And God forbid you leave it in a less affluent neighborhood. Okay, all right. So our friend Eric came by and was looking at it, and he just sort of casually said, and he's like that quintessential Cali stoner, so he has this real focused, measured way of communicating, and he just said, dude, that's a rat. <laughs> and obviously we were like, no, no, look at it. It's one of those little pet store mice. And he just took this long draw off his joint and said, Dude, whatever you want to tell yourself, but that's a rat. <laughs> Give it a couple <laughs> weeks and that thing will be eight inches long. Was he right? I mean, yeah, we drove it to Beverly Hills that day. <laughs> okay. So where does Phoebus come into all this? So I ran into Phoebus a few times during that same period, out of the blue. Once at a grocery store in my neighborhood, once at an art opening, and once in a parking lot of a video store. Wow, video store. I know, classic. And neither of you are from Los Angeles. No, he's from the Northwest and I'm East Coast, and we met in college in New York. And he has no reason to think you'd be living in Los Angeles. I don't think so. This was before I was on social media. We didn't even have friends in common. Anyway, I remember thinking it was so random. And now you think, not random at all. So there's a pause here. And that happens a lot when I listen back to these interviews with Daphne. The pauses are ominous because the whole thing is actually terrifying. And sometimes we both remember that at the exact same moment. And we just breathe together. In hindsight, Daphne believes this is when Phoebus's obsession begins to switch gears. Less 
the one that got away, and more, so you're saying there's a chance. Daphne's version of their timeline runs like this. Daphne dates Phoebus in college for three months. The relationship ends because winter break begins, which is a rather long break, almost five weeks, and they each return to their hometowns across the country from each other. A 17-year-old Daphne spends hours on the phone with her best friend over break, smokes a lot of weed, dyes her hair purple, does art projects. Basically, as she puts it, spaces out and has fun. A 19-year-old Phoebus gets into some kind of low-grade trouble, we think involving shrooms, prompting his parents to keep him out of school for the beginning of the next semester. Daphne does remember that he calls her parents' house sometime over break and tells her about the infraction. She remembers that he was playing it cool, but sounded pretty upset. So Daphne returns to campus, and Phoebus does not. And the relationship just fizzles out. They're kids in the last gasp of the 90s. There's no FaceTime, no social media. No one really even has a cell phone. No harm, no foul. When Phoebus does finally return to school after spring break, Daphne is seeing someone new, hanging out with a different group of people, moving at the social warp speed typical of college freshmen. She's not mean to Phoebus. They just don't overlap a lot. They say hi to each other. A few times, he leaves long messages on her campus voicemail just playing a song off his stereo. Of course, Daphne now identifies this as alarming, but at the time, she only finds it sort of annoying. The rest of their college years pass with this dynamic unchanged. Senior year, Daphne meets her current partner, Kay, and they totally fall and stay in love. Hi, I'm Kay. Okay, so you and Daphne meet... In college. We knew each other kind of the whole time, but we got serious our senior year. And that's about how long ago? 20 years, exactly, last month. Congrats. Did you celebrate? Wild party. (laughs) Okay, okay, touche. We biked the kids to Red Hook and picnicked. Nice. Okay, so you graduate and then... I was for sure moving to LA. I was ready to be back in California. Kay grew up in the Bay Area, and they totally have that vibe. You know, effortlessly laid back and critically switched on at the same time. Easy, generous physicality, hard-as-nails morality. Irrelevant, but noteworthy. Kay's got a great laugh, and their smile is frustratingly pearly. I was interested in getting started in the industry, so L.A. was a no-brainer for me. I was shocked when Daphne says she'd go with me. Would you have stayed in New York if she hadn't wanted to go? Dee likes asking me questions like that. (laughs) Like what? Fight traps. So Daphne and Kay decide to give Los Angeles a try. And a couple months into that adventure, Daphne runs into Phoebus at a grocery store. And you think this is a coincidence? I think so. Phoebus's aunt lived in Los Angeles, and he was clearly doing her shopping. His basket had things like chicken cutlets and flavored seltzer and a box of Kleenex. What 20-something buys a box of Kleenex? I still wouldn't do that. What do you use to blow your nose? Toilet paper. It's the same as I buy paper towels, but I don't buy paper napkins. But my mom has Kleenex, toilet paper, paper towels, and paper napkins. 
It's old-fashioned. Not sure that reasoning would hold up in a court of law. He also told me he was staying with his aunt and gave me her number to reach him there. Okay, I'll buy that. He seemed genuinely surprised to see me, like sheepish and awkward. He kept tucking his hair behind his ear, and he kept saying stuff like, Oh man, yo, this is crazy. I don't know. And he, he laughed a lot, but like not at anything in particular. It was a weird interaction. And then he was like, yo, let me get your digits. How do you respond? I definitely knew I didn't want him calling me. So I said, I don't have an LA number yet. And he doesn't challenge that? He doesn't ask if you have a cell phone? Luckily, no. He was crazy flustered. I, I gave him a pen and something to write on. He gave me his aunt's number, and I got out of there. That was it. For me. But I think this random run-in felt more significant to him. Significant how? I don't know. I guess he thought it showed we were meant to be. When I got in my car, I could see him through the window still standing exactly where I'd left him, holding his basket, just frozen. It was disturbing. And then you run into him at an art opening. And this is also coincidental? Well, this one isn't as clear. The artist was someone I was friends with in college, and Phoebus definitely would have known that. It's plausible he was hoping I'd be there. What does he say when you see him? Long time no see. And then he did the weird laugh and said, nah, just playing. Because you've just seen each other. I guess. Yeah. Wait, I can tell you when the opening was. Hold on. Now Daphne begins flipping through a black sketchbook. She routinely brings documentation to our Zoom calls. Daphne has six large sketchbooks like this she has used over the years as journals. They do come in handy as we try to reconstruct her timeline in regards to Phoebus. It's worth noting that Phoebus himself is never mentioned during the time they actually knew one another in college, something Daphne makes sure to point out. She says, almost exasperated, it was so brief, and it was so long ago. It just makes you feel like, I don't know, you should never be nice to anyone. Daphne pulls out a small postcard and holds it up. This is from the show. Intergalactic Sanctuary. Her titles have gotten a lot better. Anyway, so there we go. And the Iraq War started in March that year. That's when I remember having one of those white rats. In the video store? It's just another place in my neighborhood I went frequently. I don't know. It's just not possible to know if he was following me then. But it almost doesn't matter. Why do you say that? Why doesn't it matter? Because the mindset was already there. He was a believer. In what? In us. Daphne shows me another old journal, butterflied open. She sketched Phoebus on one of the two visible pages. By her depiction, he's fairly strong, a little stocky, She's drawn arrows pointing to different parts of him with descriptions written in. Skater hair, 
ski jump nose, beady eyes, pointy chin, sneakers, 5'11 or so. There are other notes as well. I drew this in 2013 after it starts getting crazy. It was my best recollection of him. What's that say at the bottom, under his feet? That says erotomania. Is that a diagnosis? It seemed to fit at the time. Erotomania is a psychological disorder in which the subject obsessively pursues the notion that the object of their affection reciprocates their romantic feelings. It's true that Phoebus's letters frequently fret over the idea that his relationship with Daphne had fallen apart due to a mere technicality, over a mere timing issue. That if winter break hadn't happened, then he and Daphne would still be together. He doesn't seem to factor in the possibility that she might not want to be with him. That doesn't fit with his fantasy. So seeing her again, unexpectedly, in a grocery store in Los Angeles, might have been the little spark he needed to awaken that dormant belief. A fate theory of sorts. We now know that Phoebus's aunt moved to Arizona within that year. He has no means to remain in Los Angeles, so he's forced to return to Oregon and stay with his parents. He eventually begins working as a sales representative for a car dealership. He competes in low-key BMX tournaments. As far as Daphne is concerned, he seems to go dark. But we know better now. A little spark is nurtured in Phoebus's psyche, with no opposition or counterpoint. No one tells him he is wrong, or that his feelings are not just unrequited by, but completely unknown to the other party. His fate theory ignites into a flame. Delicate at first, he must cup his hands around it to protect it from the wind. He thinks we are meant to be together, and anything inhibiting that inevitability is simply an obstacle that must be overcome. And apparently, he's willing to take it slow. The Rat King is a production of The Shrill Collective. It was written by L.R. Wilde, directed by Chelsea Feltman and Ash Croce. Audio engineering and sound design by Brando Cress. Production assistance by Christina Cole, Allison Wilkes-Borland, and Linda DeFuria. Cover art by Samantha Farello. Featuring the voices of Stephanie Lavadera, Kelly Grego, Daniel Van Thomas, Fernando Vieira, Karen Levan, Richard Fisher, Dina Laura, Cherie Wishard, Al Pagano, and Rachel Feltman. The music was written, recorded, and arranged by Chelsea Feltman, Brando Cress, and Tim Leonard. Special thanks to Tim Leonard, Wes Borland, Max Zimbert, Monique Morgan, Laura Annister Walters, Maureen and Robert Croce, Rachel Feltman, Tessa Fay, and Tay Birch. If you or someone you know is being stalked, or is a survivor of domestic or sexual abuse, help is available. Go to stalkingawareness.com for victim resources and information. This and other information is linked in the show notes.